This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's cold and it's rainy, so please be careful out there. But for the next hour, we can sort of just enjoy one another. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, anything and everything that's on your heart and mind. I'll do the best that I can. All you need to do is call 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and get the question to us that way. If you're driving in your car on this wet day, the safest way to do uh, to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for the phone number, 340-9585. Well, I like weekends. I've told you that probably just about every other Friday that we're on the air. This is an opportunity to worship the Lord. Tonight, we're going to be teaching uh, the rest of chapter one in the book of Hebrews. Uh, that's at seven o'clock. That can be seen at calvarysa.com. We're going to start in the fourth verse and get to the end of the chapter tonight. Uh, on Sunday, I'm going to be finishing in Luke chapter 9. Things are getting really serious. Jesus has sort of turned the corner. Now he's headed to Jerusalem to die. Um, and that means um, everything to us. Uh, when you go to church, whatever the Word of God is saying, just listen that the Lord convict your heart, change you, whatever is necessary, uh, and use the gifts that God has given you to serve others in the body of Christ. Uh, Monday, and I'll try to remind you at the end of the program, if I don't remember, Monday is a holiday, uh, national holiday, Martin Luther King Day, so we will not be live that day. We'll be doing a rebroadcast, but we expect to be back, uh, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on Tuesday uh, for the program. Let's get to some questions that have been sent in. Here is uh, the first one. It is from James from our email inbox. He says, what does Paul mean by acting improperly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36? Is the second part of the verse, uh, or does the second part of the verse, infer that marrying is not a sin because of what he says 
in verse 27 to do not look for a wife. And then James says, thank you, James. Appreciate the question. Uh, This is a difficult passage of scripture for a lot of people to understand. Let me read verse 36. Um, Paul writes, if anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. Um, What's going on here, James? Um, If you have a King James version, it says, let them marry. Uh, I don't think that's the best translation. Uh, What Paul is saying here is that the man who wants to marry the woman he's betrothed to, uh, betrothal in a Jewish culture was like our engagement, only much more forceful. It was a legal contract. And Paul says if he wants to marry that woman, then he should do so. Um, some of the men who had been engaged in Corinth had become convinced of the spiritual advantages being single. And this seems to be addressed to such a man that's sort of the passage of the scripture and the context. What Paul's saying is the woman that you are betrothed to is getting older uh, and there's pressure to marry. Uh, if you want to do that, then go ahead and do it. Now, here's the reason for the context will say earlier, being single is better. It's better for him, and we know that Paul was single. It's better for him because he could spend all of his time and his attention on serving Jesus Christ. A married man, he says, has to care about the, the needs and the concerns of his of his wife, as it should be. Uh, and in Corinth, there was people who were getting saved, and they were starting to, to think, well, maybe it's better for me to be single and and then I can use all of my strength in serving Jesus. Um, but then they have this problem, a uh, problem of conscience with what to do with the woman he's betrothed to. Uh, and as she got older, of course, the pressure would be there to marry. And Paul is simply saying he can do what he wants. Uh, there's no sin either way. Uh, I'm sure the one thing that... Uh, um, in fact, the next verse, it says the man who settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and who's made up his mind not to marry the virgin. This man also does the right thing. Um, the engaged man who's decided to remain completely devoted to Christ, according to Paul, is doing the right thing. Uh, but the other one, there's no wrong answer here. I think the only thing that we would really consider essential here is that. Uh, you are, in fact, honest with the person that you're engaged to. Um, if you're going to serve Jesus, tell her. That's what he's saying to the church at Corinth. And if he understands that, uh, then he can't do wrong uh, in either case. So I hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Matthew. He says, I want to know about the four Gospels. Why are there only four and not more since we know other Gospel accounts were written? Um, Matthew, there were Gospels, and the word Gospel simply means good news. So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'll talk a little bit about them in a moment. Um, but, But the reason there's only four is because those are the only four that God wrote. We know there's a Gospel according to Mary Magdalene in history. There's a Gospel according to Thomas. Uh, in history, the gospel according to Barnabas. There's other accounts of Jesus' ministry. And and I'm sure that they were mostly well-intended. We can't prove the authorship of them uh, if, in fact, they were written by the people that they're, that, that they're giving credit. 
Uh, I'm sure they were well-intended. The difference is between that which is inspired by, written by God, and that which is written by the authors of the gospel, not inspired by God. Uh, There is useful historical information. Uh, There's some interesting things, but the thing that we have to understand in those other gospel accounts, um, they're not um, gospels that God wrote, and we can't affirm their trustworthiness. They're certainly not inerrant or infallible. Uh, And that's why we only have four gospels. Uh, These are the four. Four different Gospels, three of them, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, written pretty nearly the same time. I believe that Mark was actually the first one. Uh, Mark seems to be Peter's account of Jesus' life. Uh, Peter, we get a little bit of insight into his uh, personality. He is um, shorter, more direct and to the point than either Matthew or, uh, or Luke. Uh, but but that's just who Peter was. Um, we have Luke, of course, who was written by uh, what we assume to be as a Gentile and non-Jew, uh, who also wrote the book of Acts. Uh, Matthew, of course, the most Jewish of all the Gospels. It's written, uh, its sole purpose was to present Jesus as the Christ, the fulfillment of all of the Messianic prophecy. And, of course, at the end, we've got John, who is written some 60 years later. Uh, The Gospel of John, the purpose was to present Jesus in uh, all of his fullness as God, the emphasis on his deity. And that's why in John's Gospel, Matthew, there uh, are, is, is more attention paid to the miracles of Jesus, sort of his calling card as God. So that's why we only have four. It's all we need. Again, if you're a student and you like history, you like uh, interesting things to consider, there's nothing at all wrong with reading the others, but you simply can't say because the word gospel is in them that um, they're on the same level or the same par as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they are not. The difference uh, between man writing and God writing, no matter how well intended the man uh, or the woman in Mary Magdalene's case, um, they are certainly not perfect uh, and without error or contradiction. Hope that helps, Matthew. Good question. Avery says, is there any way to know what God's plan for me? Avery, there is, but you're not going to like my answer because he's probably not going to share that with you. Uh, I remember the day uh, I was driving on in my car on the 57 freeway coming home from work. Uh, in Southern California. I was listening to um, Paul writing to Timothy. Uh, It was just a radio program. Um, Actually, Raul Reese, who's a friend of mine who was doing the teaching. Um, And um, I didn't know Raul at the time. He's a friend now. Um, But I knew that he was speaking to me about being a pastor. So I knew that was what God's plan was. But that's the only snippet of information God gave me. I had no idea really then at that point what a pastor did. I I certainly didn't know how to go about being a pastor. Uh, I just knew, and I knew it deep in my heart, that I was going to be a pastor. Uh, And the way I found my way to San Antonio, Texas, where I actually 
pastored a church for the very first time, uh, was one day at a time walking with Jesus. And Avery, that's really the only thing that I can tell you. Paul says, um, uh, therefore, brothers, he's writing to Romans in chapter 12, the first two verses, which, by the way, are the foundation verses of this ministry. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in view of everything God has done, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. Then he tells us to do not be conformed. He says it's our reasonable service, our spiritual act of worship. Then in the next verse, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will know what God's perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will is. So there's a formula of sorts. The problem, again, is he's not going to give you all the details. He wants us to follow him every day, Avery, walking by faith. And as we walk by faith, God leads us into the places that he knew all along we were going to go. Remember, Avery, the entire walk with Jesus is by faith. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. That means we walk into the unknown and we do it because we trust Jesus. There's no shortcut. If you are disobedient, you'll never, uh, if you continue in disobedience, you'll never walk in the will of God. If you walk with Jesus in obedience daily, there's no way you can miss the will of God. So, Avery, don't stress out about it. Just walk with Jesus today and walk with him again tomorrow and do it again and again and again and again and then suddenly you'll be five years or ten years down the road and you will absolutely know that you're in God's perfect will. And there's a sense of comfort there. It doesn't mean it's not without fear or not without problems. But you'll look back and you'll say, wow, Lord, how did I ever get here? And he'll just smile at you and say, you followed me here. I think as humans, Avery, we're a little bit too curious. Curiosity's good, but not when curiosity trumps faith. We want to walk every day with Jesus. Abraham, you'll remember, left a place that he knew and the family he knew for a place that God never told him about. Go to a place I will show you. Well, that's kind of how we got to San Antonio. Avery, that's how you're going to get to the next 10 or 15 or 20 years of your life as well. One day at a time, walking with Jesus. People, I told you earlier, you probably won't like the answer. We want info. We don't need any info. Just walk with Jesus every day and you'll find out exactly what he has planned for you. Last thought, Avery, you don't want to miss it either. So walk with him. You can't miss it. Do your own thing. Make your own plans. You can't find it. Hope that helps. Here is a question from Harry. What two books, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, are the most revealing regarding the time that we live in today? Wow, Harry, I don't really know the answer to that question off the top of my head. Um, there are chapters. We've just started our Bible study on Wednesday nights in the Old Testament in Isaiah. Uh, and when I get to Isaiah chapter 5, and you can read it, Harry, uh, when I get to Isaiah chapter 5, um, it's going to sound like I'm describing 
the very streets of the United States of America. Uh, we live in that time now, a time when good is called evil and evil is called good. And there seems to be a pattern of behavior that's repeated over and over throughout the centuries. And we, in our nation, are repeating that pattern now. Uh, so I think that's the Old Testament book. Um, but there are others. Uh, I don't I don't advise people to go through the prophets trying to find our situation. We don't read into the scriptures. We let the scriptures read to us. We take out from what the scripture says rather than putting in our own ideas. It's exegesis versus eisegesis. Uh, in the New Testament, um, I, I'm probably going to have to conclude that it's Second Timothy. Second um, Timothy chapter 3 uh, is another chapter that describes exactly the times that we live in. Paul says, Timothy, mark this. This is Paul's most personal of all of his letters. This is when he's saying goodbye to Timothy. He knows he's going to die. Timothy's going to take over for him. The churches that he founded, Timothy will oversee uh, in particular, the church in Ephesus. And he says, Timothy, mark this. In the last days, there will be terrible times. The King James, I think, used the word perilous times. And then he describes the behavior that's a sign of those very last days. And that list of things is exactly what we see all around us. So that's going to be my guess. Uh, the one great thing, Harry, about the Word of God, as you're reading in the Word, uh, it's living and active, and the Lord will speak to your heart uh, about the things that He's put on your heart from every book, uh, no matter Old Testament or New. So th- that's just my guess. I haven't really thought about the question. Jeremiah, when I taught it, um, Jeremiah was like I was walking through the United States um, in reading the first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, I feel like I'm walking through San Francisco. I mean, it describes the kind of life that we live right now, uh, the kind of world that we live in. Uh, so there's a lot of them. Just let the Lord speak to you rather than going digging for little nuggets. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Harry, the reason I commented on that and cautioned you against it is because there's a whole lot of people that seem to be um, reading the Bible with one hand and, and, and looking at the news with the other hand. And they're trying to make what we live in and the things that we see fit into a particular prophecy schedule. And that's not a very constructive way to study your Bible. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I heard you and Paula spoke at a marriage conference this weekend. What one thing might a husband and wife do that would get them walking in total agreement? Um, Anonymous, um, there's a bunch of things. Um, But but you asked for one, uh, and, and that would be to be in the Word together to be in the Word together. Now, we know we all have to read the Bible for ourselves. God's going to speak to us individually. But remember that a husband and wife, Anonymous, are one flesh. 
Um, if you read the word together, the Holy Spirit will bring out issues. The Holy Spirit will solve problems, answer questions. Um, it, it's the only way, the, the most certain way I know to knit a husband and a wife's heart together. So so I think that would be the, the major thing. Now, there's a lot of other things. Serving together in church, uh, we encourage our married couples here to serve together. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't do things alone in the church, but to find something that we do together. Um, God knits your hearts together in that. And then sort of over both of those suggestions, Anonymous, uh, I would say this. I, I think what a husband and a wife can't serve the Lord without is a general agreement that we're going to do what Jesus says. You know, when we came back from the conference, um, I, I told the people the same thing I always start the conferences with, that uh, I can promise if you'll listen and if you'll take to heart what we're going to share with you this weekend, I can promise you that you'll never have another argument. And nobody ever believes me when I say that, but here's the, 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 the reason I do. As Christians, our job is to agree with our Christ. If a husband and a wife agrees together to agree with Jesus, what's written in his word, then when we have differences of opinion, we recognize that our opinions don't matter. It's not what I want or what she wants. It's what God wants. And then if, uh, I'll just use Paul and and, uh, me as an example. If I want something one way, Paula wants something another way, we defer to what the Word says. And the Word, as I said, is living and active. It'll speak to your heart. It's not something you have to guess about. All we have to do is die to our flesh to put away our own selfish needs and desires and remember together who we are. So I know you only asked for one, but those are three things, I think, that are really important. Um, If I had it, just one trumps the others, it's reading in the Word together. It'll change everything. Here is a question from Matt. He wants to know, does regeneration come before believing? Matt, you are listening to some Calvinist stuff, aren't you? Um, um, What Matt is asking is, I'm going to put it as directly as I can. Uh, Do you have to be saved to get saved? That's Calvinist doctrine that that says, you know, we can't uh, believe on our own. So the spirit has to save us, even if we're not aware of it. And then we can come to Christ by faith. Uh, Matt, that's not a biblical concept at all. Believing is always first. Regeneration comes upon believing. Now, believing is a lot more than just knowing. Believing is really believing. Uh, When Jesus is presented in all of his glory as the God of the universe, the creator of all things, then we have to believe that and thus put him in a rightful position in our lives. He's our Lord. We call him that every day when we pray. 
we have to do what he says. That's what believing is. If I know Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, if I know he's God, but don't do what he says, well, then I don't really know it, do I? I know about it, but I don't really know it because I'm not doing it. So if we believe the Spirit of God comes in us, and that's what regeneration is, that's what it means to be born again. So Matt, let me caution you, be really, really careful of Calvinist doctrine. Um, it is not heretical. It's just really wrong. It's, it, it, it speaks ill of the character of God. Seems to work and answer all of our questions and tie it in a neat little bundle. But what it does is it gives us a false picture of who Jesus is. Now here's what you need to know. When you gave your heart to Jesus... He knew from before the foundations of the world that you were going to do it. Romans 8.29 says that he predestined you based on that foreknowledge. More personally for me, it means that all of the time, those years that I wasted running away from Jesus, well, nothing I did could change his mind. He loved me, and I couldn't change his mind no matter how badly I behaved. And when I finally surrendered my will and asked him to be my savior, that's when I was born again. So Matt, just be careful of the Calvinist stuff that you're listening to or that you're reading. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. We would love some calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our final half hour for the week here is a question from randy uh pastor ron what is the age of accountability for for humans a friend says it's 13 because jews were bar mitzvahed at 13 um, Randy, I've heard that as well, uh, but but the age of accountability is different for everybody. Uh, here's what we need to understand. God knows every heart. He knows every thought. God knows who's capable of believing and who isn't. And all we have to do is look around in the world that we live in, and, and we can see some really, really bright five-year-olds and eight-year-olds. Um, we've got a bunch of the kids in our church, they know who Jesus is. Now, they, they, they are saved. They have a relationship with him. Uh, they're probably going to make some bad choices in the future. Uh, but they're accountable because they know right from wrong. And they know the answer for the things that they do wrong. Um, on the other hand, we've got some people in our church who are adults who have um, mental capacity issues. Um, and and they're not accountable. So the idea is, God knows. Uh, I can say unequivocally, it's not thirteen. 
just because a Jewish culture considered a boy a man at 13. Um, Things have changed so much. You know, uh, teenagers were given in marriage to older men uh, in the ancient world. Uh, We call that child abuse today. So there's no specific age where people are accountable. So trust God, trust in his fairness, trust in his justice. And most of all, Randy, trust in his love. There's nobody who's going to go to hell because they didn't say the name of Jesus uh, when they weren't accountable. In fact, God's lenience with people who are uh, less than accountable um, for reasons that are not their own, uh, God is very, very patient and loving for them. Here is a question from Miguel. Pastor Ron, is penal substitutionary atonement an essential of the Christian faith? Uh, Miguel, it is. Now, I drive people crazy when I say that, but understand this, that without Jesus taking our place, now PSA, or penal substitutionary atonement, is a hot topic to be debated. Uh, You go to blogs and websites, and, and people are making cases about it. Um, but you see, God is holy and just and sin had to be punished. God can't overlook sin. The man and the woman who says, well, I don't think penal substitutionary atonement is, is, is necessary. You don't have to believe in that. Why would God beat up his own son? Or why would God watch his son be tortured? Well, he did it because of his love for you and me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Without him taking our place, there's no way we could become righteous before God. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Isaiah 53, Miguel, are other places where um, uh, PSA is mentioned. In fact, give me just a second. I want to get to the Peter um, passage because... First uh, Peter chapter 2 is pretty clear about this whole thing. First Peter, my eyes are bad. Be gracious with me, please. First Peter 2. Okay, here it is. Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, it can't be any clearer than that, Miguel. It can't be any clearer at all. Uh, By the way, Isaiah 53, when it says, by his stripes we are healed, and we know the prosperity goofballs sort of uh, use that all time to say, well, God wants everyone to be healed, and all you have to do is have enough faith. Peter tells us what he means. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. He himself bore our sins in his body. In other words, not only did he become sin, but he bore the punishment for our sins. Isaiah 53 says, the price of our peace was at his expense. The punishment that brings us peace was placed on him. And if we forget God is holy, 
we forget that he's perfectly just, that he can never just wink at sin, overlook it. Okay, well, I know you're going to be a Christian, so I'll, I'll just overlook it. No, it had to be punished. And if Jesus wasn't punished, um, Miguel, we would be. Whenever we do communion here at Calvary Chapel, um, when I hold the cracker before we share it together as a church family, I'll talk about this is a love letter from God. He loved us so much that he couldn't bear to see us punished. And because we had to be punished, Jesus said, take me, I'll do it. So if you do not believe in penal substitutionary atonement, then you don't have a way to have your sins forgiven. So yes, it is, Miguel, an essential of the historic Christian faith. Let's take a phone call. Anthony and Seguin. Anthony, great to hear from you again. How are you doing? Uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing well, Pastor. Uh, oh. I, had, I had surgery, uh, but it's good to hear, hear you again. Uh, I uh, haven't been able to hear you for a week. I've been in the hospital. Uh, uh, just uh, had knee surgery, and then things went wrong. And then, But that's okay. Uh, uh, I called in for a Bible question, but I also called in just to ask for prayer. That y'all can keep me okay. in prayer. That I'm in tremendous, excruciating pain in my knee. They had to put some some uh, pins and rods in there, and they told me it wouldn't hurt as much, but it is killing me. And I was just released today, and I'm in a lot of pain. And and then uh, I'm just asking for prayer that I could, uh, you know, uh, the pain will just go away, and then I get that medication. Hopefully, it'll take the pain away. But uh, okay. Anthony, I know Paul is, Paul is writing your name down right now. We'll pray for you tomorrow morning at our Saturday morning prayer here at, uh, at Calvary Chapel. And uh, before you hang up, I'll, I'll pray too. What's your Bible question? The Bible question is this. Um, okay, in the book of Genesis, uh, the, chap- the first chapter, mm-hmm. uh, chapter, the first chapter 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness so that he may rule over the fish, okay? And like I told you uh, two weeks ago when I called you that I've been reading the Bible. I started with the New Testament first, and then I'm gonna, I started in Genesis, right? So as I was reading this, and then when I got to the part to where God said it's not good for man to be alone, and that he uh, He made man out of, out of dust, and, you know, he uh, created, quote-unquote, the human form which is the human body. And then when he made Adam, when he made Eve, he took the rib out of Adam's side, the, again, quote-unquote, human body. So my question is, uh, what likeness was he referring to when he said, let us make man in our likeness? And in, 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 uh, let me see what it, it's exactly what it said again. Let us make man in, in, our, in our likeness, in our image. In our yeah, in our image and in our likeness, they're both in there. Yeah. Okay, Anthony, I, I can enter that. Um, um, you know, Genesis chapter 1 is sort of an overview of creation. Genesis chapter 2 isn't the new creation story. It fills in the details of creation. So when he said um, um, in verse 26, let us, he's referring, of course, to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make men in our image. He's he's referring to two things. The first 
that we're created in the image of God means we have the free will to choose how we're going to live our lives. Um, the first man, the first woman, they use their free will to rebel against God. We've been using our free will to rebel against God. But, but the idea is that we have choice. God chooses us. We have to choose him. So the reference there into our image is that uh, we're born with the, 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 the mandate to choose. God doesn't force anybody to, to serve him, but he does force us to make a choice. And then, of course, we have to live with either the consequences or the blessings of the choice, depending on what choice we make. When he says in our likeness, so the idea there is, is still in our image. The second part of this is that we're all eternal. Just as God is eternal, he's infinite, um, we are also eternal. From the moment we take breath in this life, the, the doctor pats you on the fanny and you cry, from that moment forward, we are eternal. We're going to live forever somewhere. Just like God lives forever, ruling and reigning over the heavens and the earth, the universe, everything. Well, we are going to live forever somewhere, depending on the choice that we make. So when he talks about, let us make man in our image, those are the two things that are are, are the most important. When he gets later and says, let us, uh, it's not good for man to be alone in Genesis chapter 2. Um, uh, God anticipates our needs and all of that. Uh, so he did what was best for Adam, even though Adam didn't know he had a need. I love the fact that, that that Adam went to bed that night for the first time feeling that he had a need, Anthony. And um, um, how could he have ever known that he was lonely? How could he have ever known he lived in a perfect world surrounded uh, by by infinite beauty? Uh, and, and yet God gave the desire. He did it by having the animals parade in front of, of Adam to give him names. And as the animals would have paraded by two by two by two, male, female, male, female, male, female, male, female, Adam would have at the end of the day thought, you know, this is great. I love the animals, but everybody had somebody but me. And so there was just this desire that God planted his heart for somebody like him. And that's when God put him to sleep. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Does that make sense to you, Anthony? But it does. It opened up my mind because I never, okay, let me go to the second part of when you said about putting the desire of of wanting somebody in Adam. I never really, because I've always wondered, I know I never did. I'm not going to lie. I never did. But now I understand, you know, how God gave Eve to Adam because God put the desire in him like, mm-hmm. like, like you just explained it to me. And that is so beautiful when God puts yep. desires in you, when That's it doesn't exactly come right. from anything, and it's perfect. It means that nothing could go wrong. But as we see, something did go wrong. But sure. that's you know that's you know things. But what I'm talking about is, like for me, instance, um, I know God put the desire in my heart to read the Bible from mm-hmm. from you know from beginning to end. Although I started at the New Testament and going to the to the Old Testament. But now, going back to the initial question that I asked you, uh, now I understand that. I, I, I always thought that he was talking about a physical image and a physical likeness. But no, it, you know, you, you cleared it up for me and said, no, it's the likeness to, you know, to, to uh, like, uh, the way we are, to be holy the way we are. 
the, the righteous the way that that I am, mm-hmm. and have him have that will to to do to want to choose what to do. Yep. That's the I think me, that's the, the most beautiful thing about it. Yeah. yeah, I do too, Anthony. Let me sweeten it just one little bit more. Okay. Um, we were made in the image of God in the two ways that I indicated, but God then took on the image of man so that he could relate to us, so that he could understand us. Hebrews talks about uh, we have a great high priest who knows our weaknesses because he lived with them. And and that's just the, the, the infinite lengths to which God would go to show us how much he loves us and how much he cares. That's that's a great thing. Thank you, Anthony. Before you hang up, I want to pray for you very quickly. Father, we, we lift Anthony to you. Um, Lord, you've been so good to him. Uh, he's had so many physical issues, but in the middle of all of this, Lord, you've put this desire, this hunger for your word in his heart. Now, God, what I'm asking you to do is to, to, to help him with the pain, help him be comfortable. Um, it's hard to read. It's hard to concentrate. It's hard to do anything when you're in great pain, Lord. So would you comfort him and give him peace, take away his pain, give him some relief, Lord, so that he can continue to dig into your word and learn more about you and your glory. Bless him, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Anthony, God bless you. Thank you for calling. We'll be praying for you tomorrow, too. Thank you, sir. God bless Three, you. you. Thank you. 340-9585. Uh, here's an anonymous question Oh, about homeschooling. My question's about homeschooling. Is it biblical and something all Christians should do for their kids? Uh, anonymous uh, homeschooling isn't really in the Bible at all. Um, we can talk about fathers teaching their children um, the law and, and, and have, putting the law on the doorposts of your house, uh, and we can we can sort of symbolize that to to, to think, well, okay, I want to homeschool my kids. Um, but but it's neither biblical nor is it unbiblical. As to whether or not something all Christians ought to do for their kids, the answer is no. Here's the thing that we need to understand. Your kids deserve a gifted teacher. Somebody who's born to teach, somebody who's qualified to teach. I don't mean qualified by degrees, but I mean qualified by God. And the truth of the matter is, is that there's a whole bunch of moms and dads who are homeschooling who aren't good teachers. They're not organized. They don't make their kids keep a schedule. They, I sometimes call homeschooling church in the pajamas. Um, so so it, it's it's simply not something that we should feel any legalistic urge to do because somebody else thinks it's the right thing or, well, we got to keep them out of the evil public schools. Hey, the evil public schools need Christian kids. There needs to be light in that darkness as well. So these are questions that that parents need to seek the Lord on for their particular thing. I will say this. Uh, I don't believe that the Lord would tell anybody to, to homeschool their kids if they weren't a good teacher, if they weren't consistent, if they weren't steady, uh, if they didn't exercise discipline, uh, mostly if they simply weren't able to do it. Now, let me explain where I'm coming from, Anonymous. We have a free school here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we've been doing it now. This is our 20th year. And um, most of the time, when kids come to us, now our school is very rigorous academically. 
And and almost all of the time when kids come to us, either from public school or from being homeschooled, they're way behind our kids. And the reason they're way behind is because their teachers aren't gifted to teach in the public school setting. It's because teachers, are, their job is so difficult. I mean, we have 10, 11 kids in a class here at Calvary Chapel. In public schools, they have 20 to 30, sometimes even more than that in the class. It's impossible to be effective as a teacher. The homeschoolers who come to us, whose parents are gifted to teach, and the parents have been faithful to do it, those kids are at grade level when they come in, but but there's very few of those. Most of the time, uh, homeschooling is simply not um, functioning the way it's supposed to be. Kids aren't learning. They're not learning at the same pace, nor are they learning at the same level. It depends on the teacher. So this is something you've got to pray about. Ask the Lord what he wants you to do. But if he tells you to do it, then you do it with all of your heart and you treat your kids um, with respect, respect their time. And by that, I mean, you make sure you function in an organized way. No church in pajamas, get them up, get them dressed, feed them breakfast, then start instructing them and be consistent. Be consistent. So I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, Jeremy asks, Pastor Ron, can you explain the abomination that causes desolation? Uh, Yeah, I can, Jeremy. Um, Let me separate into two. The the abomination that has already occurred and the one that's yet to come. Um, In 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus came in and completely and utterly destroyed Jerusalem, there wasn't a rock left standing. All the gold that had been placed in the temple was melted out and stolen by the Roman soldiers. Uh, Utter destruction. Titus, we're told, before they set fire to the temple, he took a pig into the Holy of Holies and slaughtered it. So the abomination of desolation predicted by Daniel chapter 9 was partially fulfilled in type in 70 AD. Now we also know reading in Daniel that the man that we call the Antichrist is going to come up and set up Uh, an idol of himself, a statue literally of himself in the Holy of Holies in the middle of the Great Tribulation and demand to be worshipped. Of course, Jews aren't going to do it. They're going to flee to Jordan, to the rock city of Petra. And he's going to spend the rest of the time trying to kill them and God's going to preserve them in the rock city. But the idea here is that He's going to desecrate their temple. Now, that's interesting because that means in the Great Tribulation, there's going to be another temple. A third temple is going to be built. Uh, And when he demands to be worshipped, that's going to be the point 
of no return. People are going to have to decide right then and right there. Are they going to take the mark of the beast? Or are they going to be willing to die for their faith? Again, God's going to preserve his people, the remnant. But lots of people are going to die because Jews are simply not going to worship an idol. So, Jeremy, that's it. Coming soon, I think. 340-9585. Well, we've only got three minutes left. Um, Ricky wants to know, if Jesus was God and Jesus died, how could God die if he's God? Uh, Ricky, I understand that question, so I hope my readers do as well, or my listeners do as well. Um, We know Jesus was God. There's no if about it. We also know Jesus died. And it's confusing because we know God lives forever. God is indestructible. God can't die. So how did Jesus die if he was God and God died? Well, the answer is that Jesus had two natures. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. Forever the God-man. When Jesus took on flesh, he emptied himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he let go of that so that he can embrace everything in this earth as a man. So Jesus was God, but he was also a man. That means he veiled his deity. He didn't stop being God. He didn't give up his deity. He just veiled it. He never used the fact that he was God to benefit him, to help him escape, to be a blessing to him in any way. He faced every trial as a man. He went to the cross as a man. He died as a man. And then the man, Jesus, rose from the dead, giving us eternal life. You see, a man had to die for other men. And if Jesus just came as God and sort of flexed his muscles, we'd all still be lost. But a man, a perfect sinless man, died for your sins and mine. So, Ricky, God didn't die. Jesus did. And in his humanity, he faced death. And, I might add, he considered it joy to die for you and me. He endured the agony of the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. So I hope that makes sense to you, Ricky. I don't know how old you are. But that's a good question. Think about that. He loved you so much that he became a man just like you. And then he died so that you wouldn't have to. I love him. Ooh, that's good. Ricky, thank you very, very much. I think we're here at the end of the program here. We've got just a... Oh, there's the music now. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, on Monday, it's Martin Luther King Day, national holiday, so we will not be live on that day. Uh, Have a great three-day weekend. Be careful in the wet and the cold weather. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word, on Tuesday. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.